Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Paul, for the invitation to introduce today's uh, program. Uh, the Richmond Times-Dispatch is indeed proud to uh, partner with the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival in today's lecture. Um, it's really a good bet that everybody in the room and everybody in the world supposedly knows the first story of the story of the first Thanksgiving. In some rhyme or fashion, it goes like this: uh, Turkey, the color orange, black clothing, and pilgrims. Wrong. <laughs> the conspiracy is so bad that in Kroger last week, I picked up this Thanksgiving Day tie, pilgrims and Indians sitting on opposite sides of the table. <laughs> I will take it off, Graham, before you speak. <laughs> but it's really the duty of every Virginian to make sure the right story is told, and that's why we're here today. The fact is, more than a year before the pilgrims' first feast, a hardy band of Englishmen landed at Berkeley 100 on the James River and held the first real Thanksgiving. Uh, you can actually look it up in the Richmond Times-Dispatch. We were there and covered it. I'm just teasing. <laughs> um, Captain John Woodleaf and the 37 men sailed from Bristol, England on the ship Margaret and reached Berkeley 100 nearly three months later in December of 1619. They marked their, their deliverance from the stormy North Atlantic with a simple service of thanks to God. Today, our speakers, Barbara Ramos and Graham Lilleaf, will tell the real story of the first Thanksgiving in English-speaking America and of the origins of the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival, which led to President Kennedy's mention of Virginia in his Thanksgiving Day Proclamation of 1963. Now, Barbara Ramos has been affiliated with the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival since 1991. She served as its president in 1994 and currently as its secretary. Between 1983 and 2008, she worked for the Metro Richmond Convention and Visitors Bureau and the Virginia Tourism Corp Corporation. While at the Virginia Tourism Corporation, Barbara won the Group Travel Industry Leader of the Award in 1998 and the Charles Busser Award in, in 2006 as the Travel Person of the Year. A moving target, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Graham Woodleaf is the current president of the Virginia Thanksgiving Day Festival. Uh, in 2009, he retired after a long and dis distinguished career at Richmond Newspapers and Media General, where he was president of its publishing division and a corporate vice president. I know Graham as an outstanding boss and a mentor, a man of action and a man of few words. Perhaps that's Captain Woodley's legacy, too. Uh, over the years at Media General, I've heard bits and pieces of the Captain Woodley story during such places like long card rides to Bristol, uh, Graham's conference room after performance reviews and during breaks from company meetings. I must admit, during some, some really interesting meetings, I would try to clear the air and distract Graham and say, uh, hey, Graham, uh, now's a good time for one of those Captain Woodleaf stories and the legend of Thanksgiving. And Graham would always smile at me and go, later. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here with me today to get the real scoop on the real story of Thanksgiving. Ladies and gentlemen, Barbara Ramos and Graham Woodleaf. Have a nice day. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. What an introduction, but I, I appreciate everything you've said. Yes, my name is Graham Woodleaf, and I work for Media General uh, for over 45 years. I'm also a descendant of Captain John Woodleaf, and you'll hear much about Captain Woodleaf today. As Tom mentioned, Barbara Ramos is also here with us today, and she'll be talking about the festival. Barbara's a past president of the Thanksgiving organization, 
and is currently secretary. I'd really like to thank a, a couple of individuals before I start, the one being Peggy Bruce and also Jim Curtis. Jim Curtis is historian of the Berkeley Plantation, and Peggy is on our board and is a past president, but I really appreciate their help with this presentation. I'd also like to thank the people at the Virginia Historical Society, uh, especially Graham uh, Dozier and Sam Prickett with their technical advice and technical help doing all of this. And last but not least, I'd certainly like to thank Charles Berkeley of Berkeley Castle in Eng England for his assistance with my presentation. I sent it to him, got his advice in a couple of areas, and he was most helpful. Let me just say today, I'm really pleased to be here, especially pleased because this is the Times Dispatch Banner Lecture. And as Tom mentioned, a company with which I spent my whole career with. I spent 45 years with Media General and the Richmond Times Dispatch. It's a wonderful company. And uh, it's just a pleasure and an honor for me to be a part of this presentation today. Why are we here today? Let's talk about the mission of the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival, and it is to educate the public and increase awareness, both Virginia and nationally, in the historical significance of the first Thanksgiving in America. Barbara and I will do that with you today. Let's start in England in the early 17th century, and thanks to King James I, a peace accord had been reached between Spain and England. There was much feuding going on between the two countries trying to claim land in the New World. That peace accord opened up a new culture for people to come and colonize in the New World. During those years, England was overpopulated, poverty was rampant, and the woolen industry was failing. The woolen industry was failing especially uh, bad around the Berkeley area in, in England, Berkeley 100 because it, it contained a cloth manufacturing center. And because of that, it is believed that may have been a major factor in the formation of the Berkeley Company in England, which was the company that was formed to come over to the New World. When the woolen industry had fallen, people in Berkeley had to find other ways to produce income. And they started growing tobacco and other crops, much to the king's dismay. The king and the Virginia Company feared that if tobacco growing in England was successful, that it could be a problem and people would not want to come to the New World. Land was in short supply in the British Isles and they really needed the land in America uh, to plant the crops and produce profits so they could come to the New World. Because of that, the king issued a proclamation prohibiting the growing of tobacco for five years. That was the death knell of growing tobacco in England. Due to the prohibition against growing tobacco, people had no way to uh, gain income. Unemployment became extremely high, and so they started coming to the New World to seek their adventure and their fortunes. They wanted religious freedom, and they wanted to escape the tyrannical rule of King James I. Some, come at, some came for gold and silver, while others came to spread Christianity to the Indians. Uh, George Thorpe came. The motives for coming were as diverse as the people themselves, but they all wanted a life vastly different from the one they had in England. As you know, the first English-speaking settlement in Virginia was at Jamestown in 1607. Those were harsh times at Jamestown. Living conditions were terrible. It was very difficult to plant crops and land because it was on an island and the land was swampy. Because of that, not many crops grew and many people became ill and died. By 1610, just three years after people came to Jamestown, only 60 of the settlers remained of 490 settlers that came originally. 
They died because of the starving time, which was a terrible time in Jamestown history. But in spite of that, people continued to cross the Atlantic to seek a new life. Eleven years after the settlement of Jamestown, in the spring of 1618, four gentlemen met in England in London to negotiate the formation of a company to start the town in 100 at Berkeley. This was in the colony of Virginia, of course. Their motives were strictly profit-making. These four Gloucestershire adventurers were William Throckmorton, Richard Berkeley, George Thorpe, and John Smith, spelled S-M-Y-T-H. All except Smith were related by blood or marriage, and Smith became a family member 18 years later when his daughter married Thorpe's son. Now, King James I had granted a tract of land to these four gentlemen. He had granted over 8,000 acres and three miles of waterfront at the Berkeley site in Virginia. The land grant to the Virginia Company of London show the patent letters are dated February 1619, just six months before they crossed the Atlantic. When the patent was applied for, George Yardley, who was governor of Virginia at the time and a partner in the adventure, called Berkeley a very good and convenient place to start a settlement. It was a site truly well situated to grow crops. The settlers at Jamestown, as I mentioned, had not been very successful due to the harsh topography of the land, and Berkeley was much better situated uh, to do that. One of the men, John Smith of Nibley, was historian of the Berkeley family and of Berkeley Castle in England. Now this is not the same John Smith of Pocahontas or Jamestown fame. As part of his duties, he recorded the settlement of Virginia from 1609 to 1622 through a collection of 38 papers and documents known as the Nibley Papers. These papers document the chronicle of the Berkeley expedition as well as the prayerful enactment of the first Thanksgiving. They currently reside at the New York Public Library and were accidentally uncovered in 1931 by Dr. Lyon Tyler, who was at the time the retired president of William and Mary College. Now, he was also the son of John Tyler. And his young neighbor was Malcolm Jameson, who lived at Berkeley and had come there some four or five years earlier. Had it not been for this discovery of the Nibley Papers uh, in the New York Public Library, what we're discussing today may never have been known. Before I start talking about the trip across the Atlantic, let's talk some about Berkeley Castle in England. It's quite a story in itself. Charles Berkeley, who I mentioned had given me some assistance with the presentation, spoke to the Thanksgiving Festival in 1994, uh, and he gave a pretty interesting account of his home is his home for the last 800 years, his family's home for the last 800 years. The castle is the oldest inhabited castle in Great Britain. He told the story of Queen Elizabeth I, who was a frequent but very unpopular visitor to the castle. She was a keen huntswoman and loved to hunt the deer almost to extinction, much to Lord Berkeley's dismay. They were his pride and joy, and he could not see or hear or bear his precious creatures to be killed. At the end, Queen Elizabeth left her bedspread, which is hanging on the walls of the castle today. And the deer are there still, alive and kicking. In fact, the deer park in England is a historic attraction. It's one of the uh, medieval attractions of the best deer park in England. And it's quite a tourist attraction. Well, Queen Elizabeth died in 1603, and James I became king. The castle has been celebrated by Shakespeare. It's had a king, Edward II, murdered there. John Trevista, one of the earlier translators of the Bible, stayed there. 
and it's had its keep breached by Cromwell during the English Civil War. So there's quite a history at Berkeley Castle. Let's get back to the four adventurers who met in England to make plans for the settlement of Berkeley 100 in Virginia. They needed to find a leader of the expedition, and several men were considered, including William Chester, a surgeon from Bristol, England, who I have yet to be able to find the name of. I had a lot of references I looked at when I put this together, and at none of those references did they try to mention the name of that surgeon from Bristol. I can't imagine him captaining a ship. And Captain Woodleaf, and John Woodleaf was the other one they looked at. On September the 4th, 1619, they commissioned Captain John Woodleaf to lead the expedition. He was from the town of Buckingham in the county of Buckinghamshire, England. He had been and was a ship's captain and a merchant trader and had been to the New World several times and actually had survived the starving time at Jamestown. It's amazing he wanted to come back to the beautiful countryside of Virginia uh, after being involved in the starving time at Jamestown, but he did. Agreements were made that day between the four men and Captain Woodleaf, and the agreements included that the colony in Virginia would be called Berkeley 100 Virginia, similar to Berkeley 100 in England. A part of his duties, Woodleaf would be responsible for the accounting of profits and expenses. He would resolve disputes. He would update on the status of servants, and he would set up the government at Berkeley. He would also update the partners on their share of the profits and what was going on with the financial aspects of the voyage. Now learning from the tragic experience of the settlement of Jamestown, Woodleaf determined that this was not to be an adventure for cavaliers or dandies, as was the case in Jamestown. They simply did not, did not possess the skills nor the determination needed to start a settlement. Woodleaf wanted men of crafts. He wanted journeymen, joiners, carpenters, smiths, fowlers, and turners, men more comfortable with doing the work rather than having it done for them. He also had five assistants giving him advice as needed and counsel. They were Ferdinando Yates, and he, he was listed on the passenger manifest of the Margaret, the ship, uh, as a gent. John Blanchard, who was also listed as a gent on the passenger manifest. Richard Godfrey, who was a joiner. Roland Painter, who had no occupation listed. And the last of the five, Thomas Coopey, had four occupations listed, a carpenter, a smith, a fowler, and a turner. All had specific areas of responsibility once they landed, and as you'll hear later, Yates was responsible for chronicling the voyage across the Atlantic. Woodleaf relied on them a great deal, and on matters of importance actually needed to get their vote before he could proceed. Other responsibilities Woodleaf had as part of the expedition, including chartering the vessel, organizing the voyage, assembling all the supplies and provisions, and supervising the plannings and the operation at Berkeley once they landed. He leased the good ship Margaret from Edward Williams of Bristol, England in mid-August of 1619. The vessel weighed 45, 47 tons and was 35 feet long. Now in those days, most ships were either 30 to 90 feet long, so this was on the small side. Now can you imagine a vessel that length, which is just about the length of the stage, maybe at two levels, carrying 38 men for two and a half months across a stormy Atlantic Ocean. Woodleaf agreed to pay Williams 33 pounds a month for leasing the good ship Margaret, the vessel. That's the equivalent of $53 in today's terms. 
He also hired Toby Felgate to pilot the ship and paid him four pounds, 10 shillings, the equivalent of $7 in today's dollars. Because of his experience on past voyages, Woodleaf knew what supplies and provisions to bring on the ship. And those supplies and provisions included 8,000 biscuits and bread. Now, you tell me how you can keep, keep 8,000 biscuits and bread edible for two and a half months across the Atlantic Ocean. 160 pounds of butter, 127 pounds of bacon and horse meat, 60 bushels of peas, 20 bushels of wheat, 6 tons of cider, 15, 15 gallons of a liquid called aquavite, which was some alcohol-based liquid, and 5 and a half tons of beer. <laughs> also included were clothes, kitchen utensils, construction and agricultural tools, weapons, Bibles, and 6,000 beads for Indian trade. As a condition of the voyage, each adventurer was given a length of indenture and awarded acreage of land at the end of that indenture period. The average indenture period was from three years, uh, was from three years to eight years, and the acreage of land was from 15 years to 30 years, depending on their status. The five assistants received the most favorable terms on the acreage. So it was on September the 16th, 1619, just 12 days after he was commissioned, Captain Woodleaf departed King Road, Bristol, England at eight o'clock in the morning on the good ship Margaret. It was a slow start and with southward winds, speed was not great. Then on the seventh day of the voyage, a small gale came upon them. They picked up, seeds, they picked up speeds considerably because of that and were able to make much better speed. Their destination was Berkeley 100 on the King James River in the colony of Virginia and there was 38 stalwart men on board, including Captain Woodleaf. Now, Ferdinando Yates was commissioned to chronicle the journey across the Atlantic, and his account is a part of the Nibley Papers today, which, as I said, reside in the New York Public Library. It was a perilous journey. They encountered several bad storms and prayed almost constantly for a safe trip. Then on November the 28th, 1619, and remember they left in September, uh, they arrived in the Chesapeake Bay. After two and a half months on the Atlantic Ocean, on a ship that rocked constantly. During the voyage, there were claustrophobic conditions. The adventurers had no way to bathe, and there was common, constant vermin infestation on the ship. Not very pleasant living conditions in today's world, would you say? The day of their arrival in the Chesapeake Bay was a Sunday, the Sabbath, at which time they set anchor, went to the top of the mast, and saw land. The next day, a Monday, the 29th of November, a shroud storm came upon them. And they attempted to weigh anchor, and while doing so, their capstan broke. Now, their capstan, as I'm able to find out, controls the sails to some degree on the ship. It put the men in great danger and great distress. They rode the storm out, and it eventually passed. And on the 30th of November, which was a Tuesday, they moved into what is now Hampton Roads. At this point, Captain Woodleaf surveyed the landscape, went ashore, and met with friends who he had known on his last trip to England, or to the New World. When he returned to the ship, the Margaret proceeded up the King James River, and on December the 4th, 1619, dropped anchor at the Berkeley site. They had finally arrived after such a long journey. Now, as Clifford Dowdy noted in his book, The Great Plantation, the 38 men were rowed ashore, placed their personal luggage on the hard ground, gazed at the woods enclosing them, 
and listened in complete silence. Then, at a command from Captain Woodleaf, with which they were profoundly stirred to comply, the homesick men knelt on the dried grass to pray. As instructed by the London Company, Woodleaf prayed, We ordain that this day of our ship's arrival at a place assigned for Planticon, which means plantation, in the land of Virginia, shall be yearly and perpetually kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. America's first official English-speaking Thanksgiving had just occurred, and may I add, one year and 17 days before the pilgrims landed in Massachusetts. <laughs> and two years before they held their harvest feast with their Indian friends, which they referred to as Thanksgiving. Historians note in the early days, celebration of Thanksgiving was strictly a religious affair, focused entirely on prayer. It was a solemn affair, not a festival of food as our friends in Massachusetts had experienced. On November the 9th, 1962, Virginia Senator John J. Wicker sent a telegram to President John F. Kennedy taking issue with President Kennedy's 1962 presidential Thanksgiving proclamation in which he gave uh, Massachusetts and the Pilgrims complete claim to the Thanksgiving. Senator Wicker claimed he had already proven uh, to the governor of Massachusetts the validity of Virginia's, of Virginia's claim simply by displaying the documents and proof to him. <coughs> Excuse me. In response, Senator Wicker received an apologetic reply from famed Harvard-educated historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., writing on behalf of the president. Mr. Schlesinger attributed the error to unconquerable New England bias on the part of the White House staff. The White House amended its ways, however. President Kennedy's next Thanksgiving proclamation, which was issued on November the 5th, 1963, said, over three centuries ago, our forefathers in Virginia and Massachusetts, far from home, in a lonely wilderness, set aside a time of Thanksgiving. He said they gave thanks for their safety, for the health of their children, for the fertility of their fields, for the love which bound them together, and for the faith which united them with their God. Finally, finally, Virginia had been given its rightful recognition and place in history. To put this in historical perspective, Kennedy was assassinated just 18 days later in Dallas. In addition, further historical proof is in the November 24, 1969 congressional record, which tells the story of Virginia's first Thanksgiving. The congressional record gives a glowing review of the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival, and in it, Senator Harry F. Byrd, Jr. recognizes the officers of the festival and asks that a prayer be read into the record. There being no objection, this was done. Now let's talk just for a moment about Thanksgiving proclamations and how they started. On October the 3rd, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the first Thanksgiving proclamation. Just five days earlier, he received a letter from Sarah Josepha Hale. She was a 74-year-old magazine editor of Gotti's, G-O-D-E-Y-S, Ladies Magazine, and had been trying for 15 years to get a day of recognition for Thanksgiving. Where other presidents ignored her, President Lincoln uh, listened to her. And because of that letter, he set aside the, first, or the last Thursday in November of each year as the National Day of Thanksgiving and Praise. That was during the height of the Civil War, 
and he had a very moving and inspirational proclamation that asked to implore the interposition of the almighty hand to, wean, to heal the wounds of a nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the design, divine purposes. According to the collected works of Abraham Lincoln by Roy Basler, a year later, the proclamation manuscript, which was handwritten by William Seward, who was Secretary of State at the time, was sold and its proceeds were used to fund the Union troops. It's interesting to note that a document that was meant to bring reconciliation to a nation was ultimately used to fund the Civil War. In an article written in October of 1986, Nancy G. Hoser, titled Whose Thanksgiving Is It, refers to other observances of thanks uh, being given both before and after what we consider to be our official first Thanksgiving. All those observances were spontaneous and were not repeated on a regular basis, as was the case in Berkeley. The annual Berkeley religious ceremony was performed as a result of specific instructions from the London Company in England, and it was actually two years, as I mentioned, before the Massachusetts celebration. It was, the Massachusetts celebration was a one-time event which was based on the recommendation of its governor, William Bradford, and was not held because of any proclamation from England. They actually held several Thanksgivings after that, but they weren't held on a regular basis. And Massachusetts didn't even publish a, proclama a proclamation ordaining such a Thanksgiving observance until 1633, which was 12 years after their initial Thanksgiving celebration. The Massachusetts event was more social than religious, as I'd mentioned earlier, whereas the Berkeley event was entirely religious. On the PowerPoint, please note Plymouth, spelled P-L-I-M-O-T-H, is not a misspelling. Uh, in the early 1600s, that was actually the spelling of Plymouth Plantation, which was noted in Plymouth, P-L-Y-M-O-U-T-H, Massachusetts. On November the 22nd, 1972, Roger Mudd mentioned in his 6 p.m. CBS newscast that Massachusetts held the first Thanksgiving. That prompted a flurry of correspondence from Norvell Trice, who was then on the executive committee of the Thanksgiving board, and State Senator John J. Wicker. Both offered proof of Virginia's claim to Roger. Mudd was still unconvinced and wanted to see further proof. Now, I don't know if that issue was ever resolved, but I hope 40 years later today uh, that Roger is convinced that Virginia's held the first Thanksgiving. Also, I have here a very yellowed and tattered column it was written by my friend Ross McKenzie when he was editor of the Times-Dispatch. Uh, it, it was published in Thanksgiving Day of 2003. And the title is, Right to Claim Fitness Likely Belonged to Virginia Settlers. And I think Ross made a very strong case that, yes, indeed, the first Thanksgiving in America was in Virginia. I think this cartoon, which, by the way, is out as you walk in, so you'll be able to see it if you like, as well as a couple of other things that we have on easels out there, but I think this cartoon by Fred Seibel says it all. It was published in November 28, 1957. Now, Fred Seibel was a well-known cartoonist around the city. He worked for the Times-Dispatch for well over 30 years. And notice his trademark bird in the lower left-hand corner. He would have that bird somewhere on any of his, all of his cartoons. The bird bears a striking resemblance to Seibel, especially the glasses. <laughs> now, the story doesn't end here. A year later, in the autumn of 1620, another ship, the Supply, brought another 50 adventurers to Berkeley. The captain of the ship was William Tracy, 
It's interesting to note that the second ship brought four times the number of alcoholic beverages over as the first, the Margaret. <laughs> and not showing why, because Christianity was very important in those days, and that was usually the focus. Uh, the only thing we can figure out is Thorpe, who was a clerk, a cleric, was not a part of the second sailing as much as the first. But it's believed that this group of 50 adventurers participated in the second annual Thanksgiving held at Berkeley. On August 28, 1620, just eight months after they arrived, Captain Woodleaf was relieved of his duties. According to the Nibley papers, uh, the settlers at the plantation were concerned that Captain Woodleaf was using uh, company uh, resources for his personal gain. Now that is completely untrue and there's absolutely nothing in the records to substantiate that. But that's what they believed. What Woodleaf had done is he brought his family and four servants over several years earlier and simply established a home across the river called Cyan Hill. And he was trying to balance his work life with the life of running a settlement and with his family life. However, the London company was still disillusioned and simply felt like Woodleaf was not bringing in enough profit quick enough. So they relieved him of his duties. When they relieved him of his duties, Woodleaf spent a great amount of time experimenting in long-term profit-making ventures. I'm sorry, before they relieved him, when he first came uh, with the ship, he wanted to try to make some long-term gain for the London Company. And he spent a great amount of time with long-term profit-making ventures. One thing he did was plant mulberry trees to produce silk. He planted grapevines to produce wine. And he explored the land to look for iron deposits. Unfortunately, he didn't spend enough time on doing quick turnaround kinds of profit-making ventures like growing tobacco. He did that, but it wasn't his total focus. England was not satisfied. So after he was relieved of his duties, he moved to land across uh, the river that he owned at Jordan Point across the James River. Now here you'll see the lower part of the James River. Berkeley is right there in the center, just to the north, and Cyan Hill where Woodleaf lived is where that star is on the bottom left-hand corner. Now George Thorpe, who had come to Berkeley on April of 1620, just several months after the initial landing, and William Tracy, a kinsman of Richard Berkeley, were put in charge after Woodleaf left. They received commissions from Richard Berkeley and John Smith, appointing them dual governors of Virginia. Once appointed, the men went about their work, planting their crops and sending their goods back to England. During the winter of 1621 and 1622, the Indians had made themselves particularly friendly to the settlers. Berkeley 100 had never experienced any Indian hostility, and Captain Thorpe had especially pleased the Indian king or chief by building him a home according to the Eng English standards. He really wanted to please the Indians, and he wanted to convert them to Christianity. Early in the morning of March 22nd of 1622, just two years after the landing, friendly groups of Indians drifted into the settlement at Berkeley 100. A myth is that date is Good Friday, but that is not true. As the Indians approached, the colonists' fierce mastiff dogs set up a roar. Now, these dogs are 175 pounds to 200 pounds apiece, but their handlers quickly quieted them. The colonists, feeling good about the religious season, welcomed their Indian friends to the colony. That morning, the, Indian, the Indians milled with the colonists, made friendly small talk, and without warning, snatched the muskets against the wall that the colonists had put there. They also found any other things they could do to inflict harm, including uh, hatchets and knives and staves, and then they attacked. 
Now, many colonists died that day while some got away. And there's actually no exact record of how many died. Again, I looked through the references I used and could not find a number. Later, it was learned that other groups of Indians had done exactly the same thing at the exact hour throughout Virginia along the James River. Indian chief Opachikanoa led the massive uprising for 140 miles on either side of the James River. Now, this was known as the Massacre of 1622 and abruptly ended the settlement of Berkeley and the annual Thanksgiving of, of, that they were having, at least until 1958. Woodleaf was in England at the time of the massacre, and his family was at Jamestown, and actually Jamestown was spared the brutality. They were ready when the Indians came that morning with their muskets. Why? Because late the night before, an Indian named Chanko had rode across the James River and warned the people at Jamestown of what was coming. So when the Indians came the next day, they were ready, as I said. Unfortunately, the people in Jamestown did not have the time nor the means to warn the other plantations in Virginia. At this point, the Berkeley venture ended, uh, although it was the first of its kind to experiment with self-government and personal independence. And you know, we've learned many lessons since that day because of that. Some 336 years later, in 1958, the annual celebration of Thanksgiving began again thanks to the efforts of Virginia Senator John Wicker. And in that year, the Jameson family invited the Woodley family to the plantation to observe the annual event. Now, as a member of the Woodley family, I'm forever grateful to Jamesons for doing that. In fact, uh, Jamie Jameson is here today, the owner of Berkeley, and I thank him for that. That was the beginning of the celebration as we know it today in 1958. And in 1960, we were incorporated. 1961 became a nonprofit. This year, on November the 6th, we'll celebrate our 50th anniversary, and Barbara Ramos will talk about that later. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the first at Berkeley not only is the first Thanksgiving held at Berkeley and its observance held the first Sunday each November, but did you know that the first bourbon whiskey was distilled at Berkeley, not in Kentucky as some may think? <laughs> in 1622, that Anglican priest named George Thorpe distilled brew, a brew there made from corn the Indians had given him. In the files of the present owners of Berkeley, there's a fascinating letter written by Thorpe, the cleric, to friends in England. In it, he, he recounted euphoric results from drinking his brew <laughs> and reported that those who did forgot about the hardships of the New World. <laughs> and in fact, the settlers loved the bourbon so much, they stopped drinking the English beer in favor of the bourbon. Toward the end of the 17th century, Benjamin Harrison moved to the land and began to develop the area. One of his first projects was an extensive shipyard with dry docks, wharves, and warehouses. This was the first commercial shipping operation in Virginia, and I believe it may be the first in the United States. But it flourished for over a century, a hundred years, uh, taking goods up and down the James River, building boats, and opening up trade routes to the Caribbean. It was known for many years as Harrison's Landing, although all that is left today are the rotted pilings in the James River. In addition to this milestone, the Harrison family and Berkeley are synonymous, producing two, tr two presidents, two governors of Virginia, and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Now in July 1862, during the Civil War, General Daniel Butterfield of the Federal Army composed the haunting melody of taps on the grounds of Berkeley. The Union Army had encamped there, and he wrote taps with the help of Brigade Bugler, Oliver Wilcox Norton. 
He wanted to do that to honor his men following the seven days battle. The tune was so popular it was not only used by northern troops by some, but some Confederate troops as well. This musical composition, as you probably know, means good night or extinguished lights and is now the official bugle call of the United States Army. It said that the drummer boy that was there, notice the drummer boy right here on the left. It said that the drummer boy that was there uh, was taken with the beauty, was, was the grandfather of Jamie Jamison, the current owner of Berkeley. He was so taken with the beauty of the plantation that when he got out of the uh, army, the federal army, uh, he became successful in business and ended up buying the plantation. Although there's no known written record, this lore has been passed down through the generations of the Jameson family. It's also interesting to note that one of Abraham Lincoln's visits to Berkeley Plantation occurred during that same month, on July 8, 1862, where he came to review the troops. Additionally, as far as first go at Berkeley, the first organized war in the United States, which was the Indian Uprising I referred to, was held there. That was fought, of course, in 1622. And in 1726, the first pediment roof was put on the, the home at Berkeley. So enough of first. Virginia is so full of history. There are so many firsts around. Let's talk about the present. And in doing that, I'd like to ask Barbara Ramos to come up and share what we're doing at the festival with you. Thank you very much. Got to make one adjustment, so. <laughs> there we go. Well, this is like coming out of the dungeon into the light. <laughs> I had no idea they were going to make it that dark in here. But in anyway, Malcolm Jameson inherited Berkeley Plantation from his father in 1927. He took up residence and began a farming operation. At the time, he was consumed with the make, making a success of his farming operation and unmarried. Two years later, he married Grace Eggleston, a beautiful Richmond Belle. Here's a picture of Grace and Malcolm. It was under her direction that the mansion house began to regain beauty. Boxwood gardens were planted, and after World War II, Berkeley was included in historic Garden Week in Virginia. This was the beginning of Berkeley as a year-round tourism business that helps support and maintain the plantation today. The Virginia Thanksgiving Festival was founded in 1958 by late Virginia Senator John J. Wicker and was incorporated January the 13th, 1960 under the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia to be operated exclusively for education, charitable, and literary purposes. The education and instruction of the public as to the history and meaning of the annual Thanksgiving Day by reproduction of the original Thanksgiving celebration which took place near Richmond, Virginia at Berkeley Plantation December the 4th, 1619. Virginia Thanksgiving Festival had a small beginning. In 1958-1960, Mr. Jameson invited descendants of Captain Woodleaf to commemorate their ancestors' arrival. To celebrate Berkeley's beginning, a 30-minute reenactment of the landing, a brief religious service, and a prominent guest speaker 
made up the formal program, followed by Native American tribal dancers, colonial displays, and games. In 1964, the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival sponsored the traditional classic football game at City Stadium between the University of Richmond and William and Mary. It was the 73rd meeting of these two rivals, and this is the second oldest football rivalry in America. Halftime activities included a reenactment of the first Thanksgiving. On November the 23rd, 1969, the National Society Daughters of the American Colonists held a dedication ceremony of the Berkeley 100 Thanksgiving marker commemorating the 350th anniversary of the first authorized Thanksgiving Day in America at Berkeley Plantation, Charles City County, Virginia. Including in the celebration was the unveiling of the replica of the good ship Margaret on raised mound for the reenactment of the drama of the landing of the settlers, December the 4th, 1619. 3,500 people gathered on the occasion of this 350th anniversary and mark a dedication by the National Society Daughters of American Colonists. The marker is still in place near the mansion. The replica of the Margaret, unfortunately, it was destroyed by the Hurricane Isabel in September 2003. Through the years, prominent speakers have included Virginia governors, state politicians, Senator John Warner, Vice President Dan Quayle, and President George Bush. Honorary chairmen have included First Lady Susan Allen and P. Buckley Moss, a wonderful artist who created a memorable poster for us to use for fundraising. A framed poster can be seen in the lobby as you depart today. This poster is available year-round for sale in the gift shop at Berkeley. Frank Soden, a Richmond broadcast legend who passed away last December, was master of ceremonies for the formal program many times and a staunch supporter of the festival. Lou Dean, who I'm sure most of you know, was also our master of ceremonies several times. And our current master of ceremonies is Tim Timberlake another well-known Richmond radio and TV personality. As a young man, Tim provi helped provide photography for the Berkeley Plantation and 100 booklets published in 1980, and he became a good friend of Mac Jamison. For a number of years, the festival received a small stipend from the state, but today we receive no state funds. We are able to continue to meet the goals set forth in our charter with the help of a dedicated group of volunteers. We get donations of money, in-kind services, festival memorabilia sales, vendor booth rentals, a parking fee of $5 for, for cars and $10 for buses, and a percentage of food sales. This is how we exist. The official caterer for, the last, for last year and again this year is Homemades by Suzanne, one of the top caterers in the Richmond area. Her staff comes dressed in colonial attire, which adds to the ambiance of the festival. Here's a sample of some of the food that she offers for sale to take home. And this is this year's menu. We've already heard about the turkey dinner in a glass. And I'm telling you, it's the most delicious thing you've ever tasted and it sold out and we expect it probably will again this year. 
the most, oh, let's see, the next images that you'll see are going to be the types of activities and demonstrations that take place on the grounds at Berkeley. Here we have some colonial dancers performing. And then we have two reenactors teaching a young girl a colonial song. A variety of colonial games are offered for the enjoyment of the children. One of the vendors from last year made heirloom toys and also baskets. Here we have a demonstration of a man throwing a hatchet to a target. You don't want to get in his way. And he had an assistant with him, a woman, who could also throw almost as well as he could. Here we have a man, a reenactor, who is demonstrating making ironware tools. And of course, a display of muskets always attracts attention. Traveling colonial blacksmith also joined us last year. And this is always something that the children love to do. They're practicing their penmanship with making copies of the Declaration of Independence using quill scroll pens. First person interpreters stroll the grounds and love to chat with you and have you take their pictures. Here we have a group of the ladies from the National Society of Colonial, Daughters of Colonial Colonists. They help with the distribution of programs and maps of the area. Some years ago, Governor Gerald Blouse was a featured speaker, and here you see him marching to the stage with the reenactors. Every year, Jamie and before him, his father, Mac Jamison, are invited to speak to the group. The festival is so honored to have the full support of the Jamison family. For without their support, we wouldn't be able to continue this festival right on the site where the first Thanksgiving actually took place 392 years ago. The featured speaker last year was a historical interpreter portraying Captain John Smith, and he gave a rousing performance. Here we have some more of the interpreters as they're getting ready for the prayer service, conversing with the audience. Next we have the Chickahominy Tribal Dancers. They conclude the formal program, showcasing their dances, their beautiful attire and elaborate clothing. And at the conclusion of their program, they invite everyone to join in the friendship dance. This is one of the most favorite things that people love to participate in, as you can see from all the participants in the friendship dance. This is a great ending to a wonderful day celebrating our country's first Thanksgiving on the grounds where it actually took place December the 4th, 1619. So what's new for 2011? This is our 50th anniversary as a 501c3 charitable organization. So Virginia State Senators John McEachin and Walter Stosh sponsored a Senate joint resolution so noting this anniversary and it was passed by both chambers on July the 29th, 2011. The resolution will be read as part of the formal program this year. The Godspeed ship will sail up the James River from Jamestown and be anchored offshore and serve as the good ship Margaret for the reenactment 
of the landing. We are honored to have been selected as one of the five visits the ship is outside of Jamestown the ship is participating in this year. The Prince George Girl Scouts have developed a patch for the festival. These talented young ladies have created a scavenger hunt that will require any scout, girl or boy, seeking the patch to attend the festival and participate in the hunt, which will cover historic sites on the plantation grounds. So far, we have more than 100 scouts registered to participate. We're once again sponsoring a poster contest for high school students, high school art students. The poster must represent aspects of the festival and its importance to history and culture of our nation. Cash prizes will be awarded to the top three entries. A framed collage of posters from a few years ago may also be seen in the lobby. An 18-member Celtic marching band will open the festival at noon, parading down the lane to the stage. They'll be followed by an Army Brass Quintet performance and a horse and carriage parade takes place at 1 p.m. The Prince George High School Choir will open the formal ceremonies. Mark your calendars for November the 6th to be at Berkeley Plantation at noon to be a part of this very special celebration. Just a reminder, don't forget to turn your clocks back that weekend, Saturday night, November the 5th, as this is the weekend we fall back to Eastern Standard Time. And you don't want to be late, and you don't want to miss any of the festivities. We hope to see you and your families there. Thank you so much for inviting us to visit with you and share the history of our nation's first Thanksgiving. And now I'll turn it back over to Graham if you have any questions. And once again, I echo what Barbara said. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, do we have any questions from the audience? Yes. Is the Berkeley Plantation version of Thanksgiving accurately presented in the Virginia Public School textbooks? And if not, why not? Uh, I know it is a part of the standards of learning, and one of our board members is shaking her head like this. So yes, uh, it, as far as I know, it does accurately portray it in the school books. Yes, thank you for that question. The uh, Virginia celebration seems to be religious, and the Massachusetts seems to be about harvest. Uh, were either of those, or both of those, customary in the old countries? Well, honestly, uh, American, excuse uh, as I mentioned, uh, I don't know about the old countries. As I know, in the early time in, in the United States and in, in, in America, in the New World, Thanksgiving was meant to be a religious service, a solemn affair focused on prayer, and not a festival of food. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you so much for being here today.